You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Trojanized Windows 10 installers are deployed against Ukraine. Alleged booters have been collared and their sites disabled. A progress report on U.S. anti-ransomware efforts. Suspicion in a cyber attack against India turns toward China. Brian Vorndren from the FBI's Cyber Division talks about deepfakes. Our guest is Lisa Plagemeyer from the National Cybersecurity Alliance on their launch of the Historically Black Colleges and Universities Career Program and the hybrid war and fissures in the underworld. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, December 15th, 2022. Mandiant this morning issued a report on activity it was observing in Russia's hybrid war against Ukraine. It's a supply chain attack in which trojanized Windows 10 installers are being distributed to Ukrainian targets. The researchers track the activity as UNC 4166, and while they're commendably cautious in attribution, they do note that, significantly, there seems to be an overlap between this round of attacks and the target list of Ukrainian organizations against which the GRU deployed wipers early in the war. Mandiant says, While our analysts do not have enough info to attribute this operation to a previously tracked group, it has been active at organizations that were previously targeted by GRU-related clusters with wipers at the outset of the war. Of note, UNC 4166 has actively targeted organizations that were historically victims of disruptive wiper attacks that Mandiant associates with APT-28. APT-28, of course, is our old familiar friend, Fancy Bear. As Mandiant observes, that's a GRU crew. This current round looks like cyber espionage, as the activity observed appears to involve information theft. But, of course, information can be stolen for other purposes as well. Sabotage, battle space preparation, and so forth. John Holtquist, head of intelligence analysis at Mandiant, emphasizes that this is a supply chain attack, and in that respect at least reminiscent of the solar winds operation. 
he said in emailed comments, though it's hardly as technically sophisticated as solar winds, this operation is similar in that it appears to be designed to compromise a large set of potential targets who can then be winnowed down for targets of interest. In this case, those targets are the Ukrainian government. We can't afford to ignore the supply chain. It can be used like a sledgehammer, or it can be used like a scalpel. U.S. federal prosecutors in California and Alaska have charged six people with crimes involving booter services, that is, offers of DDoS attacks for hire. The charges allege violations or aiding and abetting such violations of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and conspiracy to operate a booter service. In addition to the indictments, the FBI also seized 48 domains allegedly used in the crimes charged. The takedown was an international operation. Europol announced that the action was part of Operation Power Off, a cooperative effort by U.S., British, Dutch, Polish, and German law enforcement agencies against this particular segment of the C2C market. Europol also reports that a seventh arrest in the case has been made in the U.K. The U.S. Justice Department notes that there's a public outreach component to the operation. Justice says, In conjunction with the website seizures, the FBI, the United Kingdom's National Crime Agency, and the Netherlands Police have launched an advertising campaign using targeted placement ads in search engines, which are triggered by keywords associated with DDoS activities. The purpose of the ads is to deter potential cyber criminals searching for DDoS services in the United States and around the globe, as well as to educate the public on the illegality of DDoS activities. CISA yesterday published a readout of the second meeting of the Joint Ransomware Task Force. Six working groups have taken up various aspects of the ransomware challenge, and they're worth quoting as they offer some insight into how the task force sees its mission. First, victim support. That's standardizing and synchronizing federal engagement with ransomware victims to offer services and assess any gaps to ensure that victims of ransomware incidents receive the necessary support to restore services and minimize damage. Second, measurement. That's collecting data and metrics that will improve the cybersecurity community's collective understanding of ransomware affecting U.S. organizations and trends associated with actors, victims, and impacts, which will in turn inform U.S. government action to counter the threat, provide more actionable guidance, and evaluate progress. Third, partner engagement. That's expanding operational collaboration and multi-directional intelligence sharing between JRTF members and non-governmental partners, including the private sector and the international community, to more effectively prevent, detect, and respond to evolving ransomware campaigns. Fourth, continuous improvement, examining and compiling lessons learned from recent ransomware incidents in key sectors to address gaps in coordination, increase effectiveness of information sharing, and improve the federal government's response and preparedness posture. Fifth, intelligence integration, leveraging the intelligence collection capabilities of all partners, process intelligence community analysis, and manage intelligence engagement with international partners to drive the planning and execution of synchronized JRTF operations. And finally, campaign coordination, organizing existing interagency campaigns to disrupt ransomware actors and strengthen national cyber defense against ransomware operations, 
while also collaborating with relevant partners on new campaign efforts. The record cites comments by various officials to the effect that the task force is becoming the center of gravity of U.S. anti-ransomware efforts. Redacted's director of threat intelligence, Adam Flatley, gave the task force good reviews in emailed comments. He said, It's good to see that the JRTF continues to solidify its mission and build processes to support the mission. Both CISA and the FBI are well-positioned to do great things in the cyber defense space and important parts of the ransomware actor disruption space. Of course, a lot of gangland isn't easily within reach, flatly observes. What remains to be seen is whether or not the JRTF will be properly empowered to truly leverage the whole of the U.S. government intelligence community to counter ransomware actors who operate from sanctuary in countries like Russia, where many ransomware gangs reside. The Times of India reports that official opinion is turning toward Chinese operators as the leading suspects in the cyber attack recently sustained by the All India Institute of Medical Sciences. A source told the press, as of now, the server attack is suspected to have originated from a location in China and a location in Hong Kong. Theft of personal information has been the principal concern since the attacks began on November 23rd, NDTV writes. Finally, it's well known that there had at one time been close relations among Russian and Ukrainian cyber criminals, geographically close and linguistically related as they are. Al Jazeera, however, describes the ways in which the war has broken many of those connections. Russia's war has moved its security and intelligence services to push for closer cooperation from the cyber gangs the Russian state had long tolerated. This has gone beyond privateering and advice on permissible targets. Many of the criminal organizations have been diverted from what had formerly been their money-making rackets and into making themselves a nuisance for Ukraine and its supporters. This trend has been clearest in the rise of distributed denial-of-service attacks. It's not entirely patriotic side-taking, however, although that certainly plays a part. There's also a sense in Russian criminal circles that they can now expect Kyiv's law enforcement and intelligence organizations to give them more hostile scrutiny than they receive from Moscow. Whatever they're up to, we say, shields up, everyone. Coming up after the break, Brian Vorndren from the FBI's Cyber Division talks about deepfakes. Our guest, Lisa Plagemeyer from the National Cybersecurity Alliance, on the launch of their historically black colleges and universities career program. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. 
In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The National Cybersecurity Alliance is a nonprofit organization that promotes cybersecurity education and awareness. They recently launched the Historically Black Colleges and Universities Career Program, which aims to equip students with the necessary skills to navigate the search process for positions in security, privacy, and risk, helping to build a pipeline of black professionals to fill the cyber workforce gap. Lisa Plagemeyer is executive director at the National Cybersecurity Alliance. What we kept hearing over and over and over again, the constant theme, it wasn't like, oh, I really struggled with the academics or things like that. It was, you know, somebody said my, my dad couldn't tell me not to wear an orange blazer to an interview. I didn't know what to expect in the interview process. I'd never written a resume before. I had imposter syndrome walking in the door of, of a career fair at my school. I didn't understand time zones. So when I got an invite for an interview in another time, from another time zone, I hadn't really kept a digital calendar before. I missed the interview. It was life skill things. It was things that, um, it was confidence. It was networking and having somebody to talk to. You know, a lot of us who's, we're blessed with parents that went to college. It's kind of dinner table conversation. How you might conduct yourself in an interview, how you write a resume, how you write a LinkedIn profile, like what kind of questions you might get asked and what your answers might be to those questions in an interview. And so if, if you think about people who grew up without that, then there's a void there. And that's not necessarily a problem that you solve in some... You know, it's hard to wave a magic wand and in some scalable way fix that overnight. Those are one-on-one relationships. So that's what led us to the mentorship program, to offering the mentorship program. And then just as far as as the workforce problem, attracting more kids to the, and I'll say kids because I've got kids college age. (laughs) there just isn't enough visibility of these careers. What they know is what they see on TV and the movies when it comes to cybersecurity. So how do we make it more real? How do we show them that there are people just like them who look like them working in these jobs and that there's a lot of job satisfaction um, working in cybersecurity? I know we all focus on like the burnout and everything, 
But at the end of the day, we're helping people. We're protecting assets and people. So um, a lot of that can be, you know, really rewarding for folks. So we have sort of many career fairs, cybersecurity career fairs that we hold on campus. And those are the the two main tactics of the program right now are those in-person on-campus events where we have a series of speakers that are people of color who work in security and privacy, talking about their jobs, talking about what recruiters are looking for, what kind of skills they're looking for, you know, how are they, how are they hiring? And then uh, the other tactic is that, that mentorship program that anybody can sign up to be a part of. What has been the response so far from those historically black colleges and universities that you've reached out to? Um, well, to be really honest, in some cases, it can be really challenging to work with them because they are so under-resourced and understaffed. Just having an on-campus event, you know, when you have a career placement or career services office that only has one or two people in it, staff members, then um, I'm glad that, that we have the staff available to do, you know, more of the heavy lifting there because it's, it's you know, you're holding an event. <laughs> so there's work to get done there. Um, generally, they've all been really, really uh, positive. But when it comes to the logistics, like we're there to help because a lot of them are, are, are super well staffed. That's part of the problem, you know, is a lot of these schools don't get the resources that other schools get. So hopefully by um, driving this kind of engagement, you know, we've had employers take tours of some of the schools. We've had a few schools that have opened new cyber labs and they're excited to show those off to the sponsors. And so hopefully we're doing more good beyond just the immediate interaction with, uh, with the students. So far, we've been to Prairie View A&M, St. Phillips College, and Texas Southern, all in Texas, and then Southern University A&M in Louisiana. And next semester, uh, we'll be going to North and South Carolina. Uh, we'll be going to NC Central, South Carolina State, Winston-Salem State, Fayetteville State, and Claflin. So about, I think it'll be the end of February, early March, when we do our North and South Carolina road trip. For our own listeners, you know, folks who are out there and, and are inspired by what you're up to here, are, are there are there opportunities for for people to contribute? Yeah, absolutely. If you um, if you have an hour a week or an hour a month per student, you can be a mentor. We've got uh, a software program that that runs the whole mentorship program. Not completely hands off, but <laughs> but it's pretty helpful. So we've got if you go to staysafeonline.org and click on events and programs and scroll down, you'll see the HBCU program. And all of it is explained there, including a, uh, there's a box for mentors. If you fill up that form on our website, that'll get you in our communication flow. And we'll uh, send you information on how to register in the mentorship platform itself. And then once you're in there, there's training. on being a mentor. There's um, 12 different agendas that we've sketched out that to guide your meetings with your with your mentor, just to act as a as a a guideline. But you can really um, do whatever you want with your time if the if your mentee has specific requests. And um and so we've got over a hundred people in there now that have that are actively having regular meetings. And some of the um, testimonial statements we've gotten from both mentors and mentees have been super encouraging. Um, so. Hopefully those, those students who are, you know, getting the confidence they, they need to at least attend job fairs and put themselves out there for, 
for a lot of them, uh, just just get getting themselves into the room is a, a little bit of a challenge. It's 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 just about confidence and their comfort level, and so having a, a mentor to help you through all that. And we're we're allowing the students to stay in there through their first year of their job if they want to have a mentor because. Who amongst us did not have a whole bunch of questions that first year in our new job? Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're we would love to see people um, sign up to be mentors. As we, the more schools we go to, the more kids are going to sign up, and um, it's great to have people who are there waiting to be matched with a student. You fill out a profile, and then an algorithm matches you. Or, or if you have a specific request, we could do that manually as well. Like you want somebody in a particular stage or somebody that has a certain major or something like that, we can help with that. That's Lisa Plagemeyer from the National Cybersecurity Alliance. And it's my pleasure to welcome back to the show FBI Cyber Assistant Director Brian Vorndren. Uh, Director Vorndren, welcome back. I, I want to touch base today on uh, deepfakes. Certainly been getting a lot of attention in the news lately. Uh, and your take on this from your position there at the FBI. Hey, Dave. It's good to be with you today. Yeah, deepfakes are a part of our normal dialogue here, and we actually refer to them as synthetic content. But at the end of the day, what they are artificial intelligence, machine learning-enabled synthetic content that realistically depicts something that did not happen. You know, the advances in AI and machine learning techniques will improve the speed, the believability, the scale, the ease of use, and the automation and the creation of that synthetic content or these deepfakes. And it's really replicated in high-quality videos, certainly pictures, audio, and text of events, right? And it's becoming more and more of a prevalent conversation. Um, And when we look at it from a traditional rule of law perspective, if we think about how we authenticate voices, um, obviously a deepfake voice and the need to authenticate that in real life for evidentiary purposes in the rule of law is becoming more and more of a prevalent conversation. I think most concerning to us is that the barriers to entry are decreasing rapidly for the creation of synthetic content and deepfakes. And so certainly your average person could use it for nefarious purposes, but also nation state actors could use it to conduct malign foreign influence campaigns, or a cyber criminal could use it to carry out a social engineering campaign. As these barriers do uh, decrease, right, we will likely see or hear much more realistic audio and video that will truly be indiscernible to, to you or me. So, Dave, I'm also prepared if you want to talk about kind of what is the FBI doing about it, what can the FBI do about it, and what should the public look out for, but certainly can go back to you for any questions you have. No, I think that's a great place to to go here. I mean, what are some of the practical ramifications and, and your guidance? So, from an FBI perspective, the First Amendment gives all of us as Americans broad um, broad protections in terms of speech, right? So while creating a deepfake video is not in itself illegal, 
the creation of those videos or voices by a foreign power to influence American people is something we would definitely investigate. But again, because of the First Amendment, we are limited in what I would refer to as, quote unquote, stopping it. Um, But we do partner up with other government organizations, researchers, and technology companies to develop ways to detect the deepfake content. And that's really an area we're collectively focused on. You know, in terms of guidance for your listeners and what the public should look out for, you know, when you look at deepfake videos, and there are some on the internet, there will be visual anomalies, there will be discrepancies, there will be desyncing during the video, there will be tearaways between the audio and video where there is not uh, syncing. There's also the ability to look at metadata to find out how the files were created and where they were created. But the, the concern with metadata is it also can be manipulated, so it's not a reliable indicator. So, you know, just one quick example that we could give you, and it's it's an anonymized example, is, for example, a bank manager would receive a call from a director of a company that is a regular client and whose voice the bank manager recognizes quite well. So the director would explain to the bank manager that his company was about to make a large acquisition and that he needed to, the bank to authorize a large transfer. The bank manager would believe that the voice was authentic and and speaking to the director of the company and subsequently authorized the transfer. So this is just one example how these deepfakes and these synthetic content can play out and pose a number of threats to whether it's private business or whether it's the democracy of America. So certainly happy to take additional questions, Dave. So is this a a matter that... um you know, this new technology, this rapidly evolving technology, demands a higher level of scrutiny. You know, in other words, you know, that bank manager that you're talking about might not be able to rely on knowing the familiar voice of, of a colleague or a client or something like that. They, they have to respectfully ask for additional verification. Correct. And there will undoubtedly need to be evolutions in the due diligence processes for authentication, whether it's photographs, whether it's audio, whether it's video, inclusive of audio, uh, across the business sectors, but also across the national security and traditional rule of law spectrum, to your point, because we'll need additional due diligence variables to make sure that what we think we're seeing or hearing is actually what we're seeing or hearing. At what level do you all at the FBI want to be informed about this sort of thing? If, if I, again, I'm that bank manager and I get a call and I think it may be a deep fake, should I make a call to my local FBI field office? Yeah, we would encourage you to do so. Um, these threats are going to continue to grow. We're not saying that they're going to grow at the same exponential curve that the cyber threats have uh, certainly targeted the United States and its equities, but they are going to continue to grow over time as the barriers to entry decrease and as the speed of the technology improves in terms of creation to deployment of the deepfake. And so we would encourage engagement with the FBI because we never know who the point of who is behind the point of creation. And that could lead us to a nation state actor that is conducting other more far maligned influence campaigns. And that's something very important to us. All right. Well, FBI Cyber Assistant Director Brian Vordren, thanks so much for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, 
Banta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is a production of N2K Networks, proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Karu Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfand, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Harold Terrio, Maria Varmatsis, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Millie Lardy, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Catherine Murphy, Janine Daly, Jim Hoshite, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, Simone Petrella, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.